Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me remotely from her home studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that everyone's staying safe and healthy and having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here on your favorite Catholic radio station each week at the same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on many of the great past episodes we've done, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or find us on your favorite podcast app. In today's episode, we speak of the woman known around the world for her tireless work against the death penalty. Sister Helen Prejean has been instrumental in sparking national dialogue on capital punishment. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about an abortion lawsuit in Minnesota and when and how the church is engaged in various types of lawsuits and litigation. And stick around for the Bricklayer segment for details on resources from Pope Francis that you can use to help mark the fifth anniversary of his encyclical Laudato Si on caring for our common home. Right now, we're very blessed to be joined on the line by Sister Helen Prejean. She is a sister of St. Joseph, and you might know her because of her portrayal by Susan Sarandon in the movie Dead Man Walking, an eyewitness account of the death penalty in the United States. Sister Helen continues to be a tireless advocate for criminal justice and a crusader against the death penalty. And we're grateful to have her on the Bridge Builder today to talk with us more about prison ministry, criminal justice, and the ongoing challenge of the death penalty. Sister Helen, welcome to the Bridge Builder program. Thanks, Jason. Really glad to be here. Folks might not know about your background. How did you get involved in prison ministry in the first place? What drew you to that type of work and service? Certainly one of the corporal works of mercy. Well, I just finished writing the book River of Fire, a spiritual account of waking up to the gospel dimension of justice. I was 40 before I realized integral to following Jesus is to go to the vulnerable, the poor, and to work for justice. And that's in the book, River Fire. And then that led me to leave the suburbs, move into an African-American neighborhood. And shortly after I was there, one day I got an invitation to write a man on death row. It was in the early 80s. We hadn't had an execution in 20 years. I had no idea that this man, Pat Sonier, was going to write who would be executed But I witnessed his execution, and after that, I couldn't leave this behind. I knew I was a witness, and I had to tell the story, and that's why I wrote Dead Man Walking. Oftentimes, it seems that it's easier when it comes to people who have offended or committed crimes to lock them up and throw away the key where they can be forgotten by the rest of us. But how, in your view, does the criminal justice system exhibit what Pope Francis calls the throwaway culture? Oh. You know, we're talking about social distancing now to protect ourselves from the COVID thing. But the ultimate social distancing that we have been doing for years, 2.2 million people have been thrown away in jails and prisons in this country. It's equivalent to the fourth largest city. So throw people away means you don't see them anymore. You make them invisible. And that's what we've done with incarcerating people. We're the highest incarcerating people in the world. And so then you have a label put on you as a prisoner, that you're a murderer, you're a criminal, and once a prisoner, always a prisoner. You can't be trusted, and you should never be let out. And all of this, just the demonizing of your very person, which is the ultimate social distancing. 
So you're not a person anymore. I was just with um, the attorney general in Colorado and with the head of the Department of Corrections there, and he said, we need to get away from this thing of that prisoners are defective human beings who can't be trusted. And first step we ought to do in prisons is start calling people by their first name. So the dehumanization that happens once you go through those gates is just intense. And so when I started getting involved, there's, two, there's more than one kind of death penalty. And one is, of course, to be thrown in for the rest of your foreseeable life behind bars with no human agency and, and just main, trying to maintain your humanness. And now with this COVID thing, you're in an enclosed space at close proximity with other people and prisons are themselves vectors or petri dishes, and they have no protection. The prisoners have no protection, and as we know, the guards don't either. There are 420,000 guards and staff workers that go in and out of prisons every day, and when they leave the petri dish and they go back to their families and neighborhoods, what we're learning is that there are no walls with the virus and that we're all in it together. So what happens to prisoners happens to us. Maybe that can be an incentive for us to build that bridge of humanness to people in prison. What types of things are being done? I'm glad, Sister Helen, that you mentioned the COVID crisis and the challenge in our prisons and something that folks might not think about, but uh, can be a place in which this virus is spread and, and what happens in prisons, like you said, it impacts the rest of us. We here at the Minnesota Catholic Conference asked our governor to take measures to protect prisoners and staff, but what are a couple of concrete things that you've seen people are doing in, in states around the country? Where there's a, a highly outrageous situation that happened, as happened here in Louisiana, in our Oakdale, it's a federal prison, and because we put out news all the time on our Twitter feed, sisterhelen.org, we really get things out there to the public. I got a call from a woman who was just almost hysterical. Her brother was serving 10 years at this place for some kind of, I don't know, bank offense. And they had shut off all communication and they didn't know what was going on on the inside. They had all the prisoners on lockdown. They already were knowing that some of the guards and people working in the prison were infected, and they had no way of communicating. What I love about you, one of the things in your letter to the governor, at least establish communication between prisoners and their families, video, so that they can do that and, and also talk. So what happened here with, with Oakdale is the ACLU filed a class action suit. But citizens began calling the head of the Department of Corrections, the Bureau of Prisons, just to get their voices in there on behalf of the prisoners. And so hopefully that will have an effect. They have made some changes. The class action was denied by the judge. You know, you try the legal remedies, but there are some things about humanity that are so much wider and deeper than legal remedies, and you can't always bank on the courts. But citizen action, citizens calling the Bureau of Prisons, citizens calling the governor and sending letters like you're doing, that's what really has an effect. Sister Helen, one of the things that people, the traps that sometimes people fall into is thinking of things in an either or kind of way that if we 
work to address some of the abuses and problems with our mass incarceration system or work on behalf of the well-being of those who are imprisoned, it means that we're not showing solidarity with victims or protecting public safety. How do you respond to people when there's that seemingly in either or dynamic? Well, you know, victims have to deal with this crisis in their life and trauma and grief that, uh, especially if someone's been murdered or even those that have experienced crime. How do you heal victims' families? What you do proactively is you have in your state, you have in your county, ways of helping victims deal with grief and loss and trauma. The punishing of the one who did the crime, even with death, finally doesn't do anything to heal victims. Their spiritual road is down another path. They have to deal with the loss where there's been a murder. They have to deal with the whole thing of grieving. And they have to deal often with, if someone's been taken from them, like in murder, of their own guilt or whatever they didn't do to love the person well. You know, it's kind of like when people commit suicide. They go, what, is, what more could I have done? So victim healing is on the path of life where we do proactive, life-giving things to help victims heal. But punishing the prisoner doesn't really have a direct connect with healing uh, victims. That people need safety, yes. And the first pur- purpose of a prison is for very violent people to be taken out of society to protect society. But then hopefully there's restorative justice going on with that person's life, not just punishment for the sake of punishment and exiling people for life from their families and from just life itself is a severe punishment. In fact, I think it's a form of torture. So we as a society have to ask the question is, well, what kind of society are we? And when people have done wrong things, what are we going to do to help heal that rupture and help them be restored to, to life? I'm glad you mentioned restorative justice, Sister, because it highlights the way in which we're all, uh, we live and are embedded in a fabric of relationships. And that underscores that principle of Catholic social teaching called solidarity. And, and when, yes, there's a, how can we re- when there's a break in relationships, how can we restore those? So thank you for, thank you for mentioning that, uh, that restorative yeah. justice. We're speaking today with Sister Helen Prejean. You know her from the movie Dead Man Walking and her tireless witness on behalf of those who are in prison and against the death penalty. Sister, what did it mean to you that Pope Francis's Way of the Cross meditation this year incorporated five incarcerated persons in that mm-hmm. meditation? You know, Pope Francis is so real. Of Who else should be in the Way of the Cross? I mean, what that says, that he included them, is recognizing them as the vulnerable ones in our society, not demonizing them and ostracizing them, but including them as our brothers, as our sisters. That is so Pope Francis. You know, and I love his image. What the church needs to be about is not so much the caretaker of the dogmas or the church buildings and all that has its place, but the main thing he said is to be like a field hospital out with the wounded. And uh, so it's perfect that he did that. Of course he did that. That's so Pope Francis. Sister, switching to the death penalty and your work and advocacy there, the, the use of the death penalty seems to be waning slowly in the United States, yet public support still seems particularly strong. Uh, there was the case in Nebraska where 
Uh, they ended the death penalty, but then a, a ballot referendum reinstated it. Why do you think it's the case uh, that, that public support remains relatively strong, even in blue states? And what still needs to be done on that front? People are so separated from deep reflection on this issue. So, of course, when you have a, a recent crime that's raw and you ask people their opinion of it, I mean, even in England where they haven't had the death penalty in years, you have a really raw, terrible crime, and you get people on the talk shows and they go, yeah, 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 we ought to have the death penalty. That is the most surface part of people's souls because they're outraged over something, and so they say that, but the whole thing, Jason, is the United States is shutting down the death penalty. And Catholics and people who went to church, there was a terrible statistic in the mid-'80s that the more people went to church, the more they believed in the death penalty. And that's from misinterpreting the execution of Jesus, that Jesus was executed, that it took a violent act to give this sacrifice over to God, and that is what healed us. In fact, just recently, within the last year in Wyoming, they were close to repealing the death penalty. And one of the senators said, and she voted against repealing it, because she said, if Jesus hadn't been executed for our sins, we wouldn't be saved from our sins, because Jesus was executed by the Romans. So therefore, that model, that juristic model, you do a terrible crime, you offend God's sense of justice, only your pain and your death will do it. So the education that's gone, we have the Catholic Mobilizing Network that's really working hard to educate Catholics. We've had a tremendous evolution and growth in the Catholic understanding of the death penalty about the dignity even of guilty people, which led to August 2nd, 2018, Pope Francis finally changing the words in the catechism that under no circumstances can we give government the right to kill their citizen, no matter how grave the crime? That took, Jason, 1,600 years of dialogue. So dialogue is the way, educating people is the way to get people to reflect more deeply on things than just the surface thing where they say, yeah, we need to kill them. They deserve the death penalty. Sister Helen, you mentioned some of the arguments that people are using for the death penalty, uh, even having a theological nature to them, like uh, Jesus's execution uh, at the hands of the state, right? Uh, right? How would you respond to the argument that nothing focuses the mind like the reality of death and that the prospect of the death penalty can actually facilitate that needed conversion and repentance so that the criminal can get right with the Lord. That's something that we hear uh, quite often in the death penalty's defense. How do you respond to that particular argument? Well, those arguments generally come from people in their armchairs, in the safety and protection of their home, and saying, well, look, that'll help focus their mind. Yeah, nothing like death, you know, uh, to do that. And their execution, that's going to help them. Some people interpreted that in Dead Man Walking, that, well, if he hadn't had the death penalty, he never would have repented. He never would have shown remorse. He never would have asked uh, forgiveness of the victim's family. The threat of death does not change a human heart to compassion and to ask for forgiveness. If anything, the threat of death, self-preservation can kick in. And so anybody who would say something like that, oh, look, this will help you focus, or is removed from the reality of a human being being an imaginative, conscious human being put in a small cell for 20 years, waiting to be killed and then taken out and killed. They just haven't 
really delved into the depth of what that torture and that suffering is for a person. But people are good. When people are made to be afraid in the public, they can say things like that. But I've learned this from 30 years of dialogue with the American people on the road, including with Catholics. And when you bring people close to the reality, when you help them stand in the outrage of the crime and stand in the outrage with them, and then you take them into the human being on the other end of this that we're going to render defenseless and kill. And I want to tell you, Jason, that was the heart of my letter to Pope John Paul in 1997 when I got a chance to write a letter about the death penalty. And I said, Your Holiness, does the Catholic Church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? And you heard a lot of pro-life Catholics say they're against abortion, they're against euthanasia, the usual things we say, which is right, which is good. But then draw a line, but when people are guilty, we don't owe them that same thing or say they have that dignity. And I said to the Pope, I said, when I'm walking with a man to execution and he's shackled hand and foot with chains and he's surrounded by six guards and he's going to walk this hundred feet and then they're going to take him and strap him down and render him defenseless and kill him. And he turns to me as we start the walk and he says to me, Sister, please pray God holds up my legs while I make this walk. Where is the dignity in killing a person who's been rendered defenseless? And it was a turning point. It was one turning point. You got to know when we do dialogue together as community in the church. It's never going to be one person. But I knew that the heart of the Catholic teaching was that the only way the death penalty could be used would be to defend society. So you have prison. You have a way to defend society. How do you justify this act and and that you could never call it morally right? And uh, so that was one of the things. And I think it was one of the building blocks that helped. It was one of the pivots that helped. uh, And Pope John Paul paved the way for what Pope Francis did because when uh, Pope John Paul came to St. Louis in 99, when all this dialogue was going on like mad in the church, for the first time he put the death penalty in with the other pro-life issues, and he said no to abortion, no to euthanasia, no to the death penalty because it's cruel. He acknowledged the torture of it. Our Supreme Court won't. And unnecessary, even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. And that paved the way then for what Pope Francis did on August 2nd, 2018, and definitively changed the Catholic Catechism. What do people need to know about persons on death row besides they've committed violent or horrific offenses? But there's a human being there. And what do folks need to know about, you know, what are some common attributes or things that you see among persons on death row that you can share? Uh, First of all, they're all poor. Uh, Only poor people get the death penalty, and they're called uh, because often they don't get good defense, and prosecutors will think 50 times before they go up against somebody who has a good lawyer on the other side. They're going to fight them every inch of the way. Most of them have had terribly abused lives. I mean, over 90%, in fact, suffered violence as children. They came up in terrible, terrible surroundings. That's not an excuse. That ever excuses a human being from killing another human being. 
but it is mitigating circumstances and it is what can lead to compassion. And far more than my saying a few snippets about how I believe these people are human and the human traits I've seen in them, I've seen kindness in them, I've seen like Manuel Ortiz, the man I'm visiting now on death row, he's on death row and he's teaching a Vietnamese guy in the cell next to him how to read. And so you see acts of kindness to each other. But far better than my doing this with people is to invite people, and a lot of the deacons in the Catholic Church are getting involved with prison ministry, is to begin to have direct experiences with people in prison. You do Kairos retreats with people in prison. You write letters. You become pen pals to meet the human being. You know what Pope Francis calls the gospel of encounter. You can't do this just by relay. I'll tell you something about their humanness. But nothing like the direct experience ourselves. And so that's an invitation to anybody listening to this to begin to get involved in prison ministry in your diocese or wherever you are. It's a real clear mandate of the gospel. I was in prison and you came to me. I mean, it's specified. And uh, so it's like you're really doing the gospel when you do that. Now, you're going to get out of your comfort zone and you're going to move into another. But to be a field hospital where the wounded are, I suggest that that's what people really do, some kind of direct communication with people in prison. You said getting involved in prison ministry. Are there other things that you would recommend for people to just get started or thinking about these questions more? Or what can you leave our listeners with in terms of practical things and practical steps that might be next? Like whatever's going on in your jails and prisons around the COVID thing, prisoners have no voice other than yours. So to call the governor, call on behalf of prisoners that they will be treated humanely. Part of the mandate of running a prison is the protection and health of prisoners. And when you have no voice, when people just distrust you, health care in prisons is often terrible. I witness people being so sick, and when they try to get on sick call to go to the hospital or go to get help, they automatically not trusted and told they're they're malingering. That means they don't want to go to work. So they're distrusted. So anytime we raise our voice on behalf of a, a prisoner, so to be alert to what's going on with the COVID thing and where that needs to be held. With the death penalty or life without parole sentences, penal reform, that human beings should not be thrown away for the rest of their lives for a crime they did. Everybody's worth more than the worst thing they've ever done. Most human beings can change their lives, and we have to believe that about each other. It's what the whole gospel's built on, that we can be a new person, that we can that we can change. And so anywhere for penal reform, and then, of course, Minnesota doesn't have a death penalty. God bless Minnesota. But more and more states are joining you. Colorado just joined you. But that's through hard, slow work of educating the public. And that's the only way we change things. And we do it mainly through story. You don't just go before an audience and give them facts and statistics and try to prove logically that the death penalty is wrong. You tell them a story and you bring them face-to-face then with someone being executed. You also bring them face-to-face with the suffering of the victim's family. And that's why the film of Dead Man Walking is such a success, because it brings you over to both sides 
I call it both arms of the cross. Jesus is stretched out, one arm reaching out to the victim, and one arm on that cross reaching out to the one who did the crime. And Jesus is saying, both of these are sons and daughters of God. And that's what our call is, is to be Jesus and be compassion when people are crying for vengeance and an eye for an eye and a light for a light. What a powerful image of the reconciling power of Jesus and the cross. Uh, Sister Helen Prejean, thank you for that. Thank you for joining us on the Bridge thank Builder you. program today. And you you said that you have a Twitter feed, uh, sisterhelen.org, was that? Yeah, one? Go, oh, I, I have a very active social media, and it's sisterhelen.org. It's got Facebook, it's got Twitter, it's got everything we're doing. Well, you are a powerful force for evangelization and a beautiful witness in defense of the dignity of the human person, a truly prophetic voice. Sister Helen Prejean, thank you for joining us on The Bridge Builder today, and God bless your work. We'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what have you got for the mailbag segment? A number of Minnesota doctors have filed a lawsuit over elective abortions that are still being allowed to take place here in Minnesota during the COVID-19 pandemic. And we sometimes get questions as to why Minnesota's bishops are not part of lawsuits such as this one. Jason, can you help us understand this dynamic a little bit more? Yeah, we often get comments and questions, well, where is the church? Why isn't the church part of this? And, you know, it's, it just speaks to a reality of our justice system, which is not a, a bad one, that if you're going to sue, if you're going to go into the court system, then you have to have suffered a concrete injury. So if, you know, most lawsuits are styled party A versus party B, and that's usually because the party A, the plaintiff, has suffered an injury at the hands of party B. And so in this context, doctors and others, their work has been affected because abortionists are still able to carry on their work and their their work has been stalled by the COVID-19 epidemic and there's a real inconsistency there. So they have, practically speaking, been injured by this reality and it's unfortunate the state is allowing to elective abortions to go ahead. And so they've suffered a concrete injury and are suing. Oftentimes, it's the case, though, that the church is very uh, active when it comes to these cases as they get up to the appellate level, when their case is being a vehicle for larger legal issues being adjudicated, precedents being set. And so the church will often act as a friend of the court, filing a brief to help judges better understand the issues at stake. Uh, we're recording this show the very day that the Little Sisters of the Poor are back at the Supreme Court. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops has filed a friend of the court brief in that case and many other cases. There's a whole list of them on the USCCB website. The Minnesota Catholic Conference in the last 10 years has filed a number of friend of the court briefs as well in key cases, especially involving religious liberty. So the place for the church to get involved is when that legal policy is being made uh, at the appellate level, but not when there's the a lawsuit that's being initiated unless the church is suffering a concrete injury. That's the threshold you need the pass to actually get into court for a judge to hear your case. Great. Thanks for helping us really understand the, the intricacies there. Um, do you have any other tips that 
people could take with them this week in our bricklayer segment, ways that they could start building that bridge between faith and public life? Well, it's the fifth anniversary of Pope Francis's important encyclical Laudato Si on caring for our common home, an encyclical that deals with uh, far more uh, than the uh, climate change, for example. It really is about our relationships and rightly ordering our relationship. As we deal with the impacts of COVID, we can see that everything truly is connected. I like to say, and, and I got this from someone, I can't claim authorship, my body, my choice is dead. Um, the reality of what we do with our bodies and how we treat them and how we steward them has impacts on everyone else, uh, especially we see that through the spread of disease. And so what we do and the choices we make really matters. And the idea of interconnect or integral ecology, as Pope Francis calls it, is highlighted throughout Laudato Si. So from May 16th through May 23rd, Pope Francis is proposing a number of opportunities and reflections that can help you learn more about right relationships and becoming better stewards of God's creation. You can learn about those by visiting laudatoseaweek.org. Again, that's laudatoseaweek.org, and that's the title of the encyclical. I would be failing, though, if I didn't mention our great resource that helps distill and translate the key concepts of Laudato Si, uh, Minnesota, Our Common Home. Again, you can find that at our website, mncatholic.org. Again, mncatholic.org for our local resource, Minnesota, Our Common Home. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder. Remember that your organization can become a sponsor on The Bridge Builder. Show at mncatholic.org. Just send us an email there, and we will connect you with various opportunities related to show sponsorship. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and God bless your day.